Welcome to the latest Intelligence Fusion podcast. I'm Laura Brown, the Chief Commercial Officer here at Intelligence Fusion, and I'm joined by our regional analyst, Chris Ball. In the wake of George Floyd's death, countries around the world are starting to take a more detailed look at their colonial past in order to understand further the injustices created through imperial expansion. However, in Hong Kong, the last major colony to gain independence from Britain, liberal and pro-democracy protesters can sometimes be seen flying the colonial era flag as they demonstrate against the central Chinese government. To understand more about this, Chris is going to give us a brief introduction to the history of Hong Kong, explain some of the causes of the protests in the last year, and detail what he thinks we can expect to see in the future of Hong Kong, and indeed around the world, as more countries become more concerned about the future of their territory. So Chris, let's start with how uh, Britain came to rule over Hong Kong for over 150 years, and what actually led to the handover. So Britain came into possession of initially just Hong Kong Island as a result of the British victory against China in the First Opium War, which was in 1842. And then additional territory was ceded to Britain from China as a result of both the Second Opium War, as well as the leasing of the new territories in 1898. And this lease was written to last for 99 years. So uh, fast forward to the 20th century, the lease for new territories is now coming to an end. And with global attitudes towards empire and colonialism having shifted significantly, Britain and China agreed for sovereignty over Hong Kong to be returned to China. And this agreement was formalised in the Sino-British Joint Declaration on the question of Hong Kong in 1984. And then finally, sovereignty over Hong Kong was formally handed over at midnight on the 1st of July 1997, with a ceremony held on the night before. Hong Kong was reorganised into a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China, meaning it managed to retain some of the privileges and laws that it had while under British colonial rule. So, with Chinese sovereignty over Hong Kong re-established, what led to the relative civil peace in the city breaking apart over 20 years later? So, I'm going to look at uh, three specific pieces of legislation that sort of were the breaking points and which caused the recent civil unrest. Now, the first is the Fugitive Offenders and Mutual Legal Assistance in Criminal Matters Legislation Bill of 2019. This is more commonly referred to simply as the Extradition Bill. The amendment would have permitted the extradition of individuals in Hong Kong to mainland China, with fears that such powers could be used to allow the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, to pursue political opponents based in Hong Kong. Protests began on the 9th of June 2019 in response to the proposed amendment. Such protests escalated significantly, with around 2 million protesters marching on the 16th of June, while the Legislative Council, known as the LegCo, being stormed on the 2nd of July with a colonial-era Hong Kong flag draped across the podium. While the bill was withdrawn, the protests and riots continued to escalate, after examples of police brutality were recorded, and the people of Hong Kong feared that the bill demonstrated a determined effort by the CCP to dismantle Hong Kong's autonomy. The second uh, major piece of legislation was the National Anthem Bill. Now, the aim of this bill was to criminalise the act of insulting or disrespecting the National Anthem of the People's Republic of China, March for Volunteers, a law that was already in place in the mainland, but not Hong Kong. The law would have led to a number of political and practical issues, with the main concern being that the law eroded some of the freedoms enshrined in the basic law, uh, which acted as sort of the basic constitution of Hong Kong after the handover, 
and that it would bring Hong Kong more in line with some of the socialist behaviours of mainland China. Pro-democratic councillors successfully used filibustering techniques to prevent the bill's passage in 2019, but the recent controversial reappointment of Starry Lee as the Legislative Council House Committee Chair allowed the bill to pass its second reading in May 2020. And finally, the third piece of legislation was uh, to do with Hong Kong Basic Law Article 3. Now, previous attempt by the CCP to enact laws to fulfil the nature of the Basic Law Article, which instructs uh, the Hong Kong government to prohibit any act of treason, secession, sedition, subversion against the central people's government, have failed significantly after major demonstrations were launched. Uh, This was most clearly seen in 2003. However, the National Security Law was successfully passed by the National People's Congress in May 2020, that being the main body in mainland China, uh, and not that the Act's passing was ever in doubt. Thus, the National People's Congress Standing Committee was authorised to draft a national security law which could be implemented into the Basic Law without a vote in Hong Kong's Legislative Council. If our listeners would like to learn more about the protest movement in Hong Kong, another member of the team, regional analyst Aaron, produced an intelligence report on the one-year anniversary of the outbreak of the protests. In it, Aaron discusses the movement and its future. I'll add a link to the article in the video description for those who are interested. Now, Chris, how do you see the issue of Hong Kong playing out in the long term, both in the territory and internationally? So starting actually in Hong Kong, uh, after 2019 was marked by almost unprecedented levels of violence and protest, uh, 2020 actually threatens to see the Special Administrative Region become the centre of a global geopolitical dispute. We are already beginning to see new outbreaks of civil unrest as a result of the National Anthem Bill and National Security Law. But with the new powers that such laws give to the CCP and Hong Kong police, demonstrators will find themselves in a position of even greater risk than before. This erosion of civil liberties and democracy in Hong Kong will be fought against, as demonstrated by the recent appointment of the pro-China chairman of the Legislative Council, Starry Lee, which caused such controversy amongst pro-democratic legislators that there were demonstrations actually inside the chamber, with legislative proceedings temporarily suspended. As a result uh, of these new powers, protesters will likely be forced to turn to more violent measures, as seen in November and December of 2019, resulting in similar impacts, which include the death of protesters, mass vandalism of businesses, shutdown of infrastructure, closure of shops, and the breakup of families who have relatives serving in the police, uh, which is often a result of the emotional strain induced through doxing. Financially, it would be unlikely that China will want to interfere significantly in the economic sphere of Hong Kong. The financial gains that Hong Kong's capitalist system can provide, being attractive even to the most socialist member of the CCP. However, the Hang Seng Index has suffered, with a fall of 5.6% on the 22nd of May, after the national security law was passed. Additionally, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's announcement that the US will consider withdrawing Hong Kong's special status due to the erosion of Hong Kong's autonomy will also make trading in the city a less attractive prospect. Furthermore, businesses have reportedly been quietly forced to designate themselves as either pro-China or pro-democracy, as part of a phenomena known as the yellow economy. Uh, And rioters have been targeting businesses seen as pro-China, while pro-democracy businesses face intrusion and harassment by government institutions. 
Now, Western startup businesses in Hong Kong may find life more restrictive and uncomfortable if policies such as internet restrictions and political censorship are implemented, and thus make it less attractive to foreign workers. Significantly, even Hong Kong citizens may feel forced to migrate to other nations, as seen before the handover of 1997, in which an estimated 300,000 people left the colony for destinations including Canadian Vancouver, Singapore and Britain, over fears that China would dismantle the civil liberties and capitalist economy of Hong Kong. Consequently, residents may accept the British offer of potential citizenship for British nationals overseas, with all Hong Kong citizens having been designated as British nationals overseas after the handover. And they would potentially do this in order to either emigrate or receive some standard of protection against Chinese security laws, uh, that it is, if the British government decides to adopt such a policy. Consequently, this would raise the likelihood of political clashes between Britain and China, as seen with the case of Li Po, a British bookseller from Hong Kong who was involuntarily removed and taken to China in 2015. Britain, however, is stuck at a crossroads with regards to Hong Kong. It is duty-bound by the Sino-British Declaration to protect Hong Kong's autonomy and civil liberties, while also having to think strategically about the potential geopolitical and economic impact of antagonising the CCP. The flying of the colonial-era flag on the 2nd of July demonstrated the positive perceptions that some in Hong Kong have towards Britain and the years of British rule over the territory, with any failure by the UK to protect the autonomy of Hong Kong being consequently perceived as an abandonment or betrayal of the people of Hong Kong. Domestically, the UK has seen greater anti-CCP sentiment after issues such as COVID-19 and the debates over the construction of 5G infrastructure, which major concerns were raised over the possibility of China being able to use the 5G network for espionage operations. In regards to parliamentary politics, the creation of a China research group by prominent Conservative backbencher Tom Tugendhat presents a significant challenge to Boris Johnson's government's policies towards China, with a group consisting of enough Conservative MPs that could create embarrassment for the government if seen to be voting against it on matters concerning China. Furthermore, long-standing issues which have demonstrated Chinese aggression towards dissidents or minority groups, such as the Dalai Lama of Tibet and the Uyghur of Xinjiang province, have created unease towards China in Britain, with such feelings reportedly extending even to the royal family, as supposedly demonstrated when Prince Charles failed to attend a state dinner with Chinese President Xi Jinping in October 2015. However, post-Brexit Britain is looking for trading partners, and had been building positive relations with China during David Cameron's premiership, lasting from 2010 to 2016. Furthermore, China has declared the struggle in Hong Kong to be a domestic issue, the Sino-British Declaration is a historic document, with any British intervention being neo-colonialist in nature and a violation of Chinese sovereignty over Hong Kong. Consequently, Britain, along with the US, has tried to encourage the United Nations to review the crisis, though China and Russia's influence on the Security Council has meant said attempts have failed. Finally, in the United States, the American response to Hong Kong must be put in the context of two issues the first being COVID-19, and the second being the upcoming 2020 presidential election. In regards to COVID-19, President Trump has demonstrated contrary views towards China, at times tweeting in support of President Xi Jinping and the CCP's response to the virus, while at other times referring to COVID-19 as the China virus, 
or more recently still as Kung Flu, and blaming the country for the spread of the disease. As such, it is likely that Trump will want to be viewed as being proactive in protecting the autonomy of Hong Kong and making the CCP accountable for their actions on the world stage. But whether the sentiment will be backed with practical action is impossible to say. President Trump's image and reputation is for the utmost importance this year, as he faced an election in less than six months. Now, in the 2016 election, Trump took an aggressive stance towards China, which became a key part of his Make America Great Again rhetoric. Now, this rhetoric has been translated into policy uh, during his term in office through the ongoing trade war with China and the strengthening of America's position in the South China Sea. Consequently, we can expect a similar rhetoric to be taken again in the 2020 election, with Trump having the opportunity to use Hong Kong as a platform with which to attack China, with such attacks possibly being linked to the CCP's culpability in failing to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Now, in doing so, Trump would have the opportunity to deflect some of the criticisms targeted at his own administration's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic in the US, and also rally support amongst those in his voter base and party who are anti-China. In response, we can see that China have already begun to launch their own attacks on the US, using the death of George Floyd and the consequent civil unrest as examples of America's long-standing problem with racism and police brutality, and such claiming that any American criticism towards Hong Kong's police's response to pro-democracy protests is being either disingenuous or hypocritical. Thank you very much, Chris. To take a closer look at the data which supports analysis like this, you can now take a 14-day free trial of our threat intelligence platform. I'll also add a link into the description so that you can book your free demonstration quickly and easily online. If you'd like to keep up to date with the latest assessment and analysis from the IF team, don't forget to hit subscribe. Thanks for listening.